Welcome to Boots Off Log On, a podcast where we talk all things farm business. A show about the business of farming, bringing you insights and wisdom from the leaders in farm business, helping you minimise risk and maximise return on all your hard work. I'm David and I'll be your host for the show. Welcome to the uh, podcast and today we're going to be talking about a duty of care which sounds like a big legal term but we'll get into that in a minute and I'm sure it's not scary or, or complicated at all and Kelly and I as usual will be, be conducting the interview together like we did in the last podcast and um, let's hope let's learn something together. So welcome guys. Now I don't know who to ask first up. Uh, either, either Daniel or Phil, but I need someone to explain to everybody the duty of care. I, that sounds very much like a legal term that I'd read in a contract somewhere and I wouldn't know what it means. So can you explain to us, one of you, um, you can choose, <laughs> what, what, why, what is duty of care and, 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 and how does it and why does it matter in the context of a, as a farm owner or a business owner? All right. So how much time do we have, David? We we have um, yeah we don't have um, three hours. Pretend you're on the clock, Phil. No. <laughs> <laughs> like if we could make that two ways, couldn't I? But, <laughs> um, all right. So Danielle, do you want to leap in? Sure. Um, I guess really to summarise, duty of care is a legal obligation to take reasonable steps to not cause foreseeable harm to another person or their property. So a really common and basic example um, would be, you know, maintaining a footpath so that people don't trip over it as they walk. Um, so I guess that's it as its, as its most basic form. Once a duty of care is breached, so if someone injures or suffers themselves damage, um, that's obviously where causes of action such as negligence or nuisance can occur. Yeah, that sort of um, always begs a question that, um, so one of the things I'd written down was, you know, I'm, I'm seeing now I'm a farmer and, and I do the best I can, etc. And so what, And so what is the difference between lack of duty of care or negligence and unfortunate accidents? that are unforeseeable. So is that, a, I suppose that's where the law comes in, but uh, can you explain how do I judge that? It's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because invariably, you know, these law cases, if you like, uh, arise because someone suffered some form of loss or, or damage, right? And um, it could be damage to a crop, let's say, um, as an example, but and it might be in the context of spray drift that that damage has occurred. Well, you know, then you start asking those questions. Well, what is that duty of care? Who's owing a duty of care? What does it mean? And then what Danielle has indicated there, what is the foreseeability of damage? This this is probably an area of law where um, you're right, David, it's very complex and each you know, critically, each separate event, if you like, is going to have to go under the microscope to 
um, obtain that outcome, whether there is a duty, is damage foreseeable, could something have been done to prevent loss and damage or injury, and is there a compensable claim? So we, we can't really, and I'm sorry about this, we can't really say something is foreseeable versus something isn't. Yeah, I, I do take your point, um, and I'm a firm believer that accidents do happen. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, when, when we often talk about these things, the first thing I think about is the extreme example that we often see either in uh, fiction or in real life from places like America. You see these yeah. extreme examples, and I know we always, there's a lot of discussion in Australia about we're not America, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but, you know, we have a risk of doing that maybe. But is so at a practical example, as a farmer, you know, I can't worry about everything. So, and you would have seen examples of, you know, things that have happened or haven't happened, but things that um, I suppose what we want to be here is practical, not worry people, but say, okay, you just should be aware of these areas of your business and like in the, in the context of duty of care because you can't worry about, you know, your own shadow here. Well, that that's true. And I, I guess um, in the sense of, uh, what we do know and what we have observed um, or heard about, there are some, I guess, clear areas that farmers can consider, think about, try to change their practices or improve their practices. Um, and those areas, you know, if we take the sample safety, right, we've just had... Mm -hmm. on the 31st of March, the new safety laws come in. Primarily, those laws haven't changed the primary duty of care to keep workers safe, right? So that's always going to be a duty of care, the duty to make sure your workers are safe. Um, we have animals. So, again, animals can take, you know, when we talk about animals, it can be several different ways. So if you're... Uh, putting uh, your stock through a yard, right? Make sure there's no people in the way to get injured, right? If you're if you have your sheep out in a paddock, make sure you're you're dividing fences or or for standard and quality such that your sheep don't get into your neighbour's land, right? Otherwise, there's a potential breach of your duty of care not to have something emanate or you know go out of your property into someone else's property. Then we have issues like spray drift, which I mentioned before. You know, if you're spraying your crop and it's blowing, you know, a 50K an hour easterly across to your neighbours and you want to put some glyphosate or other herbicide on uh, that's, uh, you know, deadly, um, be cautious, be careful. Maybe do it the following day when the wind is not so so powerful and another example that that we've found and i've used recently is fire right mm -hmm. so, um all right well the shire may have issued you with a permit to do a a burn you know the, the stubble burn but if it's 45 degrees out there and you've got a 50k an hour wind blowing maybe you should think twice about actually starting that fire or have um, you know some serious physical resources about you so that you can control anything. 
And Phil or, or Daniel, is this a case sometimes as a, so in all of those cases, so I'm taking myself back as a farmer, you know, you're making judgment calls all the day. The amount of times I've, you know, so all I can say is when I was farming, I'd go there and I'd go, I've got to put my spray out and I've got this time and I've got this window. Yeah, the wind's a bit up. Is it enough? Is it not too much? You know, you're making these judgment calls every day. Hmm. Is this about record keeping sometimes? Like, I mean, practical things like, you know, like if you are going to spray near your neighbour and you have made a judgment call, is it about recording the wind speed and direction? Like how much of this, knowing that this is an area that that could be um, subject to this claim? Do, do you know? Yeah. So at some times do the people just need to make records to say they've made an effort to try and manage their duty of care? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it goes both ways. I mean, Wind direction, for example, they're records that you can access from Bureau of Meteorology or some records are accessible from third parties. So it's not necessarily recording every single um, fact or consideration that's come into play when you're making a decision. Um, but I think it's taking into account surrounding circumstances. So with the spray drift, there was a case in Victoria a few years ago where a neighbouring property, which was a, a farm, was undertaking some spraying and the spray drifted over to a vineyard. And that affected the grape crops so much that the uh, winemaker that had been purchasing the wine from the vineyard um, elected not to purchase that year because the crops were damaged. Now, when the court considered whether or not a duty of care had been breached, win records was something that they took into account. And now for that one, it was determined that Bureau of Meteorology showed that win records were the day that that neighbouring farmer sprayed his crop. Winds were between 20 k's an hour and up to 100 k's an hour. Oh, wow. So that was something that the court sort of said, well, you know, a reasonable person would have delayed a day or two until winds were obviously of <laughs> a more suitable condition for yeah. spraying. In that case, the farmer also ignored his agronomist or his expert's advice in relation to spraying and also exceeded the uh, rates on the chemical label. So there was a few factors that were considered in that case, but the farmer's records were taken into account in the fact that the farmer had obtained expert advice on spraying um, and that was something that was considered when reaching this decision of well there was a duty of care owed a duty to exercise reasonable care and skill of a farmer in a similar circumstance when spraying um, and considering your neighbor and there was held to be yeah a, cl a clear breach in that circumstance I mean that was a big one the vineyard not only suffered the loss for that crop for the year, but, you know, I think it took about or it's going to take about a 10-year period for those crops to come full circle. So damages were in excess of $7 million for that one. Wow. As we get more what I call urban encroachment or um, small farm encroachment into what I call broad acre or mainstream stream farming areas, has this become more of an issue? And I'm thinking more in the context we see... Um, on the other side of the world, in Europe, this becomes quite an issue. And are we starting to, is it becoming more of an issue here because you look at somewhere like southwest Western Australia, which is a bit, um, and I'm sure the um, Adelaide Hills and places like that, where you might have a, say, a commercial farm and then a, 
you know, this this idea? Does it become more of an issue in those areas where different places clash or come together? I think, David, you, you're right. <clears throat> I mean, there's always been this, um, you know, rural-urban sort of division and border. Uh, but I think with the onset, and I think where you're going, is the onset of sort of the, the hobby farm blocks next to a, a broad acre or, or a, a, I'll say, commercial producing agricultural enterprise. It, it, to be honest, the most of the issues that I that are reported to me come because the hobby farmer doesn't actually manage their land appropriately and things happen to escape out of their land. Often, though, because of social media and, and the ability of information flow to, to be so great these days, often, though, it is the sort of hobby farming group, if you like, that become more critical of the, the enterprise um, because they feel it's an intrusion on their um, seclusion, if you like. And so, yeah, that, that's a, a really difficult one. Um, and as more and more, you know, you, you talk about the southwest, there are more and more small lots and smaller lots being developed, um, traditional farming guys, uh, particularly in the lower southwest towards, um, you know, Manjimup, Bridgetown, around that area, um, they're going into very small lots. And so you have this conundrum of, of uh, mixed farming uh, and hobby farmers in there as well. And I, I think, yeah, we're probably going to see in the future a few more clashes and issues being raised on this issue of duty of care. So does this become more aware of what's actually happening? So, you know, you may be a farmer and you've been operating in a particular way, usually for generations, and suddenly someone comes in next door. I think in Kojanak there was a very famous case um, where the farmer next door went organic and lost his organic status due to, I can't remember, but it was some sort of, of cross-contamination. Yeah. Marsh and Baxter. You know, yeah. Sorry? Marsh and Baxter. Marsh and Baxter, yeah. So it was a classic case of the, the I suppose, the environment around that, that those both those people had changed because, you know, and being aware that, okay, the maybe the farmer next door, this case is now an organic farmer. So my duty of care now is a, has gone up another whole level, hasn't it? Like is a... Well, I think Danielle might have something to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I think, I suppose, without going to the nuance of that case, which yeah. I think can be dangerous, but I think it's more about being aware that, okay, now I have urban neighbours or semi-urban neighbours, I now have, a, you know, a, a farm, you know, so now my my wheat farmer is now growing oranges, you know, like there's this changing. Well, I think the question, and I'll get Danielle to deal with this, I think the question is because your neighbour has changed their, their farming practices or that land has changed zoning, say, do you, as a farmer, need to change your practices that you've implemented for the last 30 years? Yeah, and, I mean, ultimately in Marsh and Baxter, the court held that, no, neighbours do not fall under an obligation to change their farming activities on their own land purely so that they don't interfere with the use of their neighbour's land. But I think, like everything with the law, it's discretionary and every sort of case is considered in its own circumstances. So in reaching that decision, obviously the court 
had awareness to the fact that, you know, the issue there, or one of the issues sort of came down to the farmer's practice to swath the jam canola instead of to direct head it. And there was a question of, well, maybe if the farmer had have, you know, used the direct heading um, method instead of swathing, that that would have led to a different result and maybe, you know, Marsh wouldn't have lost this organic practice or organic certification um, but because swathing is a, a usual practice, it's it's not illegal. Um, yeah, the court sort of held, no, you don't have to give, um, I guess, unfair consideration to your neighbour's farming practices to an extent that they then completely impact how you yourself farm. You, there, there's been some form of movement, if you like, to organic grow growing and you get very different diverse views amongst all farmers about you know that issue and whether one's good one's not good etc martian baxter is a good example of how this organic status um, can manifest itself in a claim for breach of duty of care but failed because in assess in essence the certification wasn't really attached to that duty it, it didn't impact that duty at all um, in in the marsh um, situation. So, yeah, an interesting case. Yeah, yeah I think definitely. also, you know, that was from 2014, 2015. So, you know, in a few years that'll be a 10-year-old case. So it'd be interesting to see, like Phil said, considering organic is something that is more prevalent in today's society or whether you know, those decisions might change in, in the near future. Kelly, did you? Uh... Um, yeah, well, you actually answered my question, Phil, but I was I was concerned about well, codes of practice in the organic industry, will they change, uh, you know, as, as you said, Danielle, in 15, in 10 years' time, you know, will they um, go on to accept different levels of duty of care? But I guess my question really is around this, you know, duty of care, it's so encompassing, you know, it's not just... For us, you know, the issues that we have to take care of as an employer, um, I, I farm with, with my husband and employ staff, but also we have duty of care to livestock from an animal welfare perspective, duty of care to the environment as stewards, duty of care in terms of biosecurity. Like it's really overwhelming, you know, the number of things that we have to think about. And we've only just touched on, on a few of them here you know, do you have any, I mean, I haven't even touched on the employment with the new industrial manslaughter regs that have come in, um, and that's probably a topic that we can touch on later, but how are we supposed to navigate all of these changing um, expectations? And, you know, certainly that, that responsibility that we have as farmers to our community is, is growing and changing. That social licence that comes with that and that expectation around what is prudent and correct behaviour from us as farmers. So I'm just, I guess, long-winded explanation, just really interested in your thoughts around how we juggle these, these duty of care expectations moving forward. I think there's a bit of a difference between like a common law duty of care and a statutory duty of care as well, which sort of leads into you know, maybe some of the issues that you discussed, they arise from a statutory duty of care. So like your employment with the manslaughter, mm -hmm. that's legislated by statute. The common law duty of care is a little more open to interpretation, but at least in my opinion, I think the question really is, you know, is this foreseeability issue? I think 
often in a lot of the cases that are considered in this area, it's not usually a question of whether or not a duty of care was owed. Usually there is some way to put a duty of care to exercise some sort of reasonable skill in doing what you're doing. It sort of the question appears to be this foreseeability issue and is it foreseeable that if the duty is breached, loss and damage will be suffered? And I guess that sort of links perhaps the, the two cases that we have discussed today with the vineyard, for example, it sort of the court held that, well, it is reasonably foreseeable for a, a farmer that if, you know, you are spraying on those type in those types of conditions and in ignorance of experts' opinion and chemical label rates, for example, that that may cause harm to a neighbouring property um, versus, I guess, the Marsh and Baxter case where, you know, it was, well, is it reasonably foreseeable that if you are, you know, swathing canola or that you're, um, you know, practising in one way, will it reasonably affect your neighbouring farmer? So I don't know if that really <laughs> answers yeah. the question, but I think it really comes down to yeah, this statutory versus common law duty and the foreseeability appears to be the, the question that is, um, yeah, perhaps given more consideration than whether or not there actually is a duty of care. And that appears to be something that's, yeah, relatively a yes. Yeah. If I can add to that too, Kelly, I think if we look at animal welfare and environment, they are statutory obligations. And and whilst they bring forth a duty, it's not necessarily the equivalent for a common law duty of care. Look, I, I think when we talk about, you know, animal welfare and environmental issues particularly, we're really well, you are, as a farmer, you are dealing then with society's moral compass as at a particular point in time. And I think, you know, as a society, that moral compass changes. We're probably in an environment now where, um, you know, there's a greater emphasis on him to improve the environmental aspects. Having said that, I know many, many farmers, in fact, every farmer I'm aware of, is a land manager. They don't just farm their land, they manage their land from an environmental perspective, a soil perspective. They manage the bush environment on it. But in the end of the day, you're actually a custodian of that land for the public benefit because you're not allowed to clear uh, without a permit. So, you know, there's all these sort of conundrums. Uh, look, I, I agree with you entirely. Given the regulatory input and the common law issues around duty of care, um, it can be very difficult for farmers particularly, um, but a lot of people within industry, industry and running a business have similar imposts as well. Yeah, well, to drill down on what Kelly was just saying before, so, so from what I can gather, so we've got what we call society sort of well, it's not so much duty of care. So we're talking about things like whether people accept you spraying, the mulesing debate probably with Peter would fall into that category, yep. those sorts of or how people think you should farm. Yep. I, was, yep. I was telling Kelly before about a story. I met a, a British farmer at an ag tech conference a number of years ago and he, he had started spraying at night in Britain because people would throw rocks at his tractor during the day. Wow. And, and it wasn't uh, illegal. It was just no longer 
socially acceptable to spray crop for some reason. So yeah. it was, a, but that's not a duty of care thing. So that's more of a social. Yeah. It, it, so I, I think it was one of the questions Kelly and I had for you was social license and Kelly just mentioned it. Yeah. So there's a difference between social license and duty of care. I would think so. Yes. But having said that, I think you need to be careful because as Kelly's mentioned, you know, animal issues, uh, environmental issues, society impacts on how those laws are actually imposed upon you. And so, um, yeah, I don't think we can just say that there's a clear distinction between those two issues. There's an overlap. So what currently might be social licence could actually become duty of care if not managed correctly by the industry? Ooh. <laughs> That's a I was just going to say, I mean, in that to answer that question, we might be looking at more regulatory supply chain codes or NRM style legislation that, you know, I mean, we obviously have the Animal Welfare Act, but what, yeah, to answer your question, David, what else could come up? Well, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, probably my question is um, obviously there's animal welfare, you know, obviously there's, but that tends to be, ends up being commercial, in other words, wool growers get can't deliver to certain countries because of that yeah. so that becomes a quite a commercial decision but i'm thinking for example um, when we talk about spray does the use of chemicals for example extend to consumer care in other words so this idea of spraying or doing something on your crop that may or may not affect like your uh, your the food chain in general in other words so it, it, is it becoming an extension? Because people now, I go to the supermarket now and there's this, it becomes increasingly traceable and accountable, this food. So yeah. does the duty of care now have an expansion? I think, look, yeah, if I'm reading your direction uh, properly, I think the answer to your question is probably yes. I, I suspect growers probably going to have to do more and record more about their supply chain, about their activities to to be able to sell their produce. Uh, CBH had something out, uh, some audit process, I can't remember what it is now, quality assurance programs. Mm -hmm. right? I, I think, yes, you know, at the moment you have withholding periods for animals for fruit. Don't know that there's withholding periods. There are for some grains, I think, Um before you can harvest and and sell. So I suspect, and I think this is probably not too far in the future, that that quality assurance train, if you like, um, you, know, you could probably even call it a blockchain process, is probably going to be regulated to some degree. And in doing that, yes, that probably imposes some sort of regulatory statutory duty upon you. Now, that's more likely going to be a different type of duty than a common law duty of care, but it's still a duty nonetheless. I was just going to say the trends now that we're seeing will be the future expectations. So whether it's chemically reduced grain or whatever it is, you know, that expectation will be there, I think, um, and how we manage that, I'm not sure. I agree. I, yep. I agree. I think uh, my personal view is that whilst we can say whatever we like about, you know, the, the, the younger generation of today, you know, that, that group of individuals, say, between 12 and 28 or thereabouts, they are much more environmentally tuned than perhaps 
the older people. They appear to have much more affinity to where their food is coming from. Some of the flip side to that is a lot of people don't understand where their food comes from. Right? <laughs> um, but they want good quality food. They want food that's, uh, you know, sort of less processed, less affected by man's input. Um, I think you're spot on, Kelly, and I think that is something that we will see in the foreseeable future. Um, the other one I was talking about, uh, or sorry, as Kelly brought up, was the difference, well, you brought up as well, Phil, the common law versus legislative. So, yeah. you know, the first thing you had, duty of care, OHS is obviously the first thing a lot of people think about. Yeah. And the other one Kelly and I were talking about was things that are used to be um, just routine now you've got to be really conscious like moving stock on roads moving machinery on roads things like now does that stuff move into common law or is that so where does that sort of stuff fit you got to look at it from the point of view of your work unit there is a significant overlap in the employment sphere uh, between common law duty of care to ensure someone is safe and the statutory duty of care right so in an employment sense, you actually have both. When you're driving your vehicle, you are under a legislated duty, right? And as far as I'm aware, I don't think you would have a duty of care um, necessarily at common law. There's no sort of express cases that have arisen in WA or, you know, even really most of Australia in relation to owing a duty of care, like to your neighbour if you're driving machinery on a road. Um, I think the question of the statutory or common law duty sort of does differ depending on, like Phil said, what area you, you're in and whether there is, uh, whether it is legislated and there is a statutory duty or whether your duty sort of goes beyond that. In most cases there, where there is a statutory duty, there's also an argument that a common law duty has existed and has been breached and it sort of appears when you're considering like, you know, bushfires and the crop drifting um, and those types, or those types of cases that sometimes it's the common law duties that are the ones that appear to be upheld more. The other one is so probably the, how the community interacts with you rather than... So you're, let's say you and your employees are covered um, by statutory duty of care in the context of your operating machinery, et cetera, but you have a person come flying around a corner and run into your mob of sheep or your machinery. So is there a duty of care to the broader community? Like if I'm shifting machinery on a road or I'm shifting 2,000 sheep across a road or down a road, is that in the common law sort of sphere, those sorts of duties of care? Yeah, that example would more lean towards your common law duty to adequately secure your livestock to prevent them from wandering onto a road, for example. In Australia and WA, at least to my knowledge, there's not as many sort of reported decisions on those types of cases. There's a few in New Zealand where courts have held where stock have wandered onto a road um, by no sort of clear reasoning that the balance of probabilities suggests that they weren't secured and that, that that is a duty of care that the farmer owed to the road users. So when, you know, in this case a truck came along and it hit the cattle and the truck overturned, um, the court said, yes, well, the farmer does owe a common law duty of care 
to ensure that their livestock are adequately secured and they will not escape the boundaries of the property. David, Danielle's example is extended in, in the sense that if you're actually moving your herd of you know, cows or flock of sheep uh, across a road to get to you know, the paddock on the other side, um, your duty would extend to making appropriate decisions about notifying traffic. And we know that that's a process that's now regulated anyway. You've raised another example where there's a common law duty as well as a, a regulatory duty uh, covering the same type of activity. Kelly? I guess with common law duties, what, what you're implying is that someone else has been through that particular misdemeanour or um, incident and they've been charged or they've been, you know, fined or whatever versus that statutory interpretation of, of the legislation to come to the, the conclusion. So I'm just curious here as to what sort of things are, are playing out in the courts nationally um, with common law that we're sort of seeing in ag that we need to be aware. I mean, a lot of these unforeseeable accidents turn into common common law. So what I don't know if I've used the right legal terminology, but is, is, is that... A, do you understand what I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if I do. I think it's really everything we're discussing today and I think maybe yeah. this sort of weighs into, you know, society's impact on where that sort of drives. Really it's everything we've discussed today. It's the spray drifting. It's, you know, different cropping practices. I guess, I guess I'm looking yeah. Interesting cases that have come forward in the last few years of, of incidents or accidents that we should be aware of. So sorry to cut you off. Yeah. yeah. Um, no. Um, there's honestly a strat. Well, WA is a little bit behind our counterparts, and I think that's just also our court system. So over here, you know, decisions in the lower courts aren't reported judgments. So these cases might be going through the courts, but if they're not sort of of a quantum that's in one of the upper courts or the cause of action isn't one that's determined in the upper courts, then you won't necessarily hear about them, which is why I think with things like um, common law, duty of care breaches for like livestock escaping onto roads and things like that, we don't hear a lot about in Australia or at least in WA because they're not necessarily in those types of courts, whereas, you know, around the world it's a little bit different. Um, also, I guess there is other causes of action that farmers or uh, persons affected can pursue other than this common law duty of care. Um, it's a little bit different when it's statutory. So I know that that probably doesn't necessarily answer your question, but I feel like the areas that we're sort of seeing a lot of at the moment, at least over here, really uh, are sort of a rise out of yeah, bushfires or spray drifting or, or cropping. They sort of seem at least what I've come across to be the most common. I don't know if you've Danielle, come across Danielle, anything. Daniel, can I just drill down on the um, bushfire thing a bit? One thing I'm noticing in every district, because every farmer's buying out every other farmer, like when I was farming, if you had a like a like a burn, you'd get 40 fire units turn up. Now I don't I don't think there's that many people within, you know, 50 kilometers <laughs> of the property anymore, right? So so this this our concept of fire controls become a big issue. Yeah. So you might be you know, have huge areas of land to control and you don't have a 50 neighbours to come to your rescue anymore. So has that changed the nature of that 
Is that a legislative issue or is that, again, we have to be super aware of it as farmers now that our duty of care has increased purely because we own half the land now, you know? Well, I don't, I don't know that you could say your duty of care has increased. You, you either have a duty or you don't. It's not a measure of your comments opposite in, in the sense that we've just had quite a number of fires that have been quite horrific. Mm. And, yeah, there are less farmers out there, but I was out talking to one of the farmers affected by the Wickerpen fire, um, and he was telling me that there was, you know, 20-plus units out there. Um, mm -hmm. The biggest problem they had was that the fire spread so quickly. By the time they've actually got a unit at a point, the fire's already another three kilometres away, you know, and the fire front was so wide um, it was a 10k wide fire front, and so you know they were struggling from the get go, really, there to do anything okay. uh, seriously to, to try and affect that blaze. And I, and I understand the Corrigan fire was much the same. So I don't know that 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 your duty of care necessarily increases. To me, the response in relation to fires within you know the agricultural sector, I think there's really should be some pressure on, on the public resources to better deal with and manage those types of fires. You mentioned, I think, management or coordination, and uh, you'd probably be familiar with this dis disjunct between, you know, the country fire, rural fire service, yeah. and, the, and the, then the, you know, the metro one. That's real. It, it's sad that it's real. Right, and it creates such a tension when you're actually on the ground trying to fight a fire, um, not having control. The fact that mobiles don't work either is another issue. And to me, that, again, is, is a state-based issue because you need power to the towers. And, and if power's out, well, that's not Telstra's fault. That's actually the electricity provider. Yeah. And, you know, we, we sort of, yeah, it's a difficult one. It really is. We could spend... But purely from a farmer's point of view, though, mm. they just have to make sure that they've done the best they can. So, I mean, at the end of the day, this stuff happens, yeah? So, yep. you know, you get a bearing collapse in a harvester and suddenly it's yep. a whole different game, yeah, right? So is it just from a... I'm thinking from a practical point of view, what, uh, you know, the people listening can do is just make sure that they've ticked as many of boxes they have, like they do have a unit there, they do, ha they do have the ability to respond, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the example you raised, the bearing collapse that causes a fire, to me that's an accident, right? Yeah. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, if... if Let's say, you know, you, you've got um, an accumulation of grain dust, right, that has then created a fire. You know grain dust accumulates and is susceptible to fire in that part of your machine. You do nothing about it. Well, then fire spreads to your neighbour. Well, yes, that raises a potential for a duty of care to arise and the issue of foreseeability of damage. And, yes, you should really be trying to do as much as you possibly can by making sure that grain dust doesn't accumulate, by having your fire units available and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I think if you look in the agricultural space, a lot of the duties of care seem to revolve around taking reasonable steps to 
prevent interference or um, exercising reasonable care and skill. So I think um, from where you're going, David, it's yeah, it's not necessarily is there a duty or not or whether it's increasing or not. I think it's more that a reduction in units available and that sort of thing, that impacts what I guess the court would constitute is or isn't a reasonable step that the farmer is taking to prevent that duty of care from being breached. So, yeah, are they maintaining their their equipment appropriately or do they have any water sources available when they're burning and that sort of thing? It's this reasonable, this word reasonable and what um, what extrinsic sort of sources can impact that. Yeah, does this trip over into insurance? I was got a story a couple of years ago, and it was a it was a head of fire, and it was actually came around insurance. Now I don't know if these two cross over, but what it came down to is the insurance was dependent. The insurance payout on the fire was dependent on the maintenance of the header being done by a registered repairer. In this case, the manufacturer. Is that do those worlds cross over, or is that a was that purely an insurance thing, or is it, it's a whole different area of law, I suppose? Well, it crosses over in the sense of you know, insurance is there to try and alleviate the loss, but an insurer can sit in your shoes and chase your neighbour for breach of duty of care to recover what it has paid out, right? And that's the nature of insurance. Um, they always have that right to, to step into your shoes to sue to recover what they've paid out to you. <clears throat> so, yeah, insurance is an interesting one. We have a situation, the, the Parkerville fire, the owner of the house which the pole was on, I'm pretty sure she was not insured. And, of course, she was found to be predominantly liable for the fire. And so whilst there might be, you know, this, this judgment that she's got to pay out all these people, the reality is she couldn't. Yeah. And that's, uh, I guess, you know, sort of the flip side into when you are looking at trying to recover losses, one of the questions, you know, from a legal point of view, one of the questions you need to ask yourself is does your, your uh, target have the ability to pay and, and I think with insurance as well, it comes down to, well, if if it was a case that the duty of care has been breached by, you know, a farmer's, for example, negligence or they've failed to take reasonable steps, typically, I guess that's where their insurance will go, well, was it your fault or not? And in the couple of cases where insurance parties ha or insurance companies have been joined, um, they haven't been found liable because there is direct sort of liability on, uh, for example, a company that was operating aerial spraying. So, you know, I guess insurance can come into play, but also if there is a breach of a duty of care, typically perhaps not. So, again, having this is a great case. I'm was, I just in halfway through reading a book at the moment, and that was one of the interesting cases that they found out that people feel that by having insurance, they've lowered their risk. Um, and it's a mental thing, but it's the reality is that your risk remains the same, even though you have insurance. Yeah. But that's not how people's minds work, which is interesting. Yeah. But again, it's, so if we take that to duty of care, just because you might have 
say, fire insurance, your duty of care or your hasn't actually changed. It remains the same regardless, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And and just on that, I'm going to flip to the safety laws now because having insurance is of no benefit to you because the new laws prohibit you from using insurance to offset any potential fine or penalty. That's one of the most significant changes introduced in these new laws. Mm. So getting insurance for, for fatality on on farm, it's not going to do anything in relation to your duty of care. It's not going to lower your risk, but it's also not going to be of any benefit to you. So, yeah, that's that's a bit of a sleeper, that one. Yeah, it's, it's really important. But imagine that there's, there's not a direct relation between risk, insurance and duty of care. They're all separate issues yeah. Yeah. and need to be considered separately. Yeah. yeah, and I think it makes sense. If you circle all the way back to sort of, you know, the very basic, well, what is, what is a duty of care and it's, you know, that legal obligation to take reasonable steps to not cause foreseeable harm. So if you are finding yourself breaching a duty of care, then you are or you've either taken steps or you're admitted to take steps to prevent that foreseeable harm from occurring. So there is that negligence um, aspect of it. So with with that in mind, that, that requirement for documentation particularly you know we've spoken about it now you've taken reasonable steps in terms of the you know the new industrial manslaughter laws to prove that you've inducted your staff to prove that you've thought about the top 10 risks on your farm that will kill someone and you've actually made steps for it do you have any really good tips really simple tips because it's really overwhelming for a lot of growers at the moment these new regulations as to just where to get started from a legal sort of footprint and how to address that duty of care? Always education. Um, ensure that you you have a, an up-to-date knowledge and understanding of what your obligations are. In the context of uh, safety on the farm, if you have employees, when you engage them, do a safety induction, repeat that induction regularly, you know, probably once every 12 months, Back to David's point earlier, keep records. Keep records of your induction. Uh, When it comes to machinery, keep records of your maintenance. Maintain your machinery regularly. Do annual checks at the very least. Keep records of those things. If you have new machinery that you're bringing into the farm, ensure that people are trained properly on it. If you have someone that doesn't understand or doesn't know how to drive a particular machine, give them a proper training exercise, record that you've done so. It is probably unfortunate, Kelly, in the safety space, records are your saviour. I read, a, I heard a quote the other day, safety Record. is evidence-based and um, I guess everything that yeah. I, I do in my business yep. moving forward is to create evidence. So uh, I think that's yes. with anything and that we're talking about today. <laughs> so. Yeah. To feel to draw a parallel into the into the safety, you know, the um, from what I can understand, you know, the, you can bring, say, for example, someone onto your farm and you can do a OHS order and you can invest in systems and processes to try and try and make sure that you are um, you you're very conscious of your obligations and are meeting them. Yeah. When it comes to common law, do you have any tips for growers about okay, which is a little bit more 
um, broader and a little greyer. Um, <laughs> is there areas that maybe you could say, okay, I'm thinking about practical tips that, you know, our listeners can just take away and go, okay, obviously meet your OH&S obligations and be um, educated on the law and, you, and those. But when it comes to common law, can you do some sort of audit? Can you go through a process or is there areas that you should look at to make sure your account, you know what you should be accountable for or be aware of when it comes to duty of care? Right. Are you talking about employment or? On- no, sorry. In the, in the, in, in just in within the common law space. So I was just yeah. saying within employment, yeah. there is already essentially almost checklists available to say, okay, you have to make sure you've covered off these areas within your business and you, you're doing your inductions. Yeah. But in the common law space, yeah. How should a farmer maybe treat that space? You know, how should they try and make sure that they've done what they can to try and know that they've met their duty of care? I'm going to handball that. Danielle? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. It's a little different, and I think that just arises because we're dealing with, like, a common law duty. It's not something that is legislated. So it's not something like with the manslaughter or the new um, OSH laws where it sort of expressly tells you what you have to look out for. So people can create lists to say, do this, don't do this. With the common law, it's forever changing. Um, But I think, you know, there's no sort of immediate resources where we can direct you to websites or say, come to us and we'll give you a one list that, you know, as long as you tick all the boxes, you're never, ever going to breach one. It sort of circles back around to this really, all you can do is, is as much as a reasonable person can foresee. And a lot of that really is common sense. Like, you know, if you're operating machinery, it's maintaining machinery and if you are not a mechanic it's outsourcing that maintenance and perhaps this is sometimes where farmers can get into a a little bit of trouble is they're the jacks of all trades and some of them are glorious at doing everything but they don't necessarily have the qualifications to back that up so whilst they may be servicing their own machines are they the appropriate person to do so so I guess, yeah, there's no tick list. It's really just about, well, what's within your realm and what do you need? So is it just like you said, it's um, to try and keep it down. Like you, when we've been listening to that, I've been going, a lot of this is, okay, just don't be, you know, obviously negligent about this. But it, there is second order effects, like you're saying. So there's the obvious stuff. Okay, could I could a car come around the corner and run into my bush, my sheet? Yes, I could. Okay, maybe I should, you know. But then there's this second order of stuff, which is, okay, if I, main, you know, I don't know, if I do my own maintenance and get it wrong, could this go wrong, right? Or if it did go wrong, what would happen? And I think is, so there's this obvious, well, obvious, yes, like what's say common sense, isn't that common? Um, yeah. uh, um, so there's the stuff that is very obvious, like first order stuff. If I do, if I don't do this, what could happen? Could it hurt someone? Yes. Okay. Make sure that I'm ticking, well, trying to do what I can to avoid that. But then also be conscious of these second order effects. In other words, what could happen maybe if this doesn't happen? You can't sit there and think, what if? what if A, what if B, what if C, what if D, and then go all the way to Z. Mm. Um, But I guess, you know, from a legal perspective, when courts are considering these cases, they're looking at it on a balance of probabilities. So is it more more than 50% type of situation? Is the balance tipped 
so that a, a reasonable person in that position would have outsourced the maintenance of their machinery because they aren't a mechanic or, you know, they would have gone, oh, it's way too windy to spray today and the wind is blowing onto my neighbour's property so I'm going to put pause on that and I'll do it another day. So I guess it's considering well in this balance of probabilities sort of scale, am I doing something or is what I'm doing likely to cause damage to someone else if I don't do it properly? Yeah, so it's a bit of do unto others as you do unto unto yourself a bit, isn't it? Like it's uh, like if I was on, if I was the farmer in that other property, would I want me spraying? Well, maybe not. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that's it. It's really thinking, and you know, a lot of it is common sense, but some of it definitely is just you know luck of the draw. But I think if you consider the cases that are really talked about a lot, the the breach was relatively obvious Um, and I think in a lot of them it's safe to say that you know a reasonable person in those shoes perhaps would have done something different and that really is where the duty of care claim is successful there has to be some sort of nuisance or some sort of negligence not just a mistake or an innocent sort of omission. Kelly, have you got any um, left? I know Kelly's always got a lot of burning questions. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm restraining myself today because it's a it's a whole ball game of, <laughs> of things that we're trying to balance. And the, the most pressing one, I think, for, for farmers at the moment is certainly the, the new OHS industrial manslaughter law um, regulations and laws uh, legislation. So, and that's a whole nother a whole nother podcast, I think. But I guess that interest, that common law duty and that that, um, ensuring that we're doing everything foreseeable is what I've taken away from today, that it is... Absolutely. Yeah, reasonably foreseeable. I think you've got to look at it in the context that, you know, it is is the reasonable man in the street test, right, reasonably Mm -hmm. foreseeable. Um, I think in the safety context, I think the term is reasonably practicable. And those things do have their own meanings. And so I had this conversation with a farmer just earlier this week about what is reasonably practicable in, a, in the context of safety uh, on farm, given that in many farm enterprises, you don't have a paycheck coming in every fortnight or every month. You, you have inputs of cash, um, you know, maybe two or three times a year. It's an irregular cash flow. You, you have to budget for all that across, you know, a 12-month window, plus deal with all your outputs, uh, particularly if you're, you know, broadacre. And so it becomes then, I think, difficult to try and manage that reasonable, practical aspect because you might not necessarily have the means to immediately deal with safety problem, having recognised it, um, and, you know, maybe two weeks down the track and an, an injury might happen where you've not actually addressed it but you've identified that it needs to be. Yeah, so there's going to be some interesting cases, I have no doubt, Kelly, in, in the foreseeable future. My guess is within the next two years, WorkSafe is going to be out there hunting. Yeah, and I think what it is is uh, we don't want people to worry uh, so much about this, but it's like what, what was it during the uh, terrorism thing? Was it be aware but not alarmed and I think and this is this case and I think what I'm hearing a lot is education I think we've um Kelly and I did a podcast last week and it was very much the same it's like you know don't worry about this 
well, be very highly aware of it, know what's going on, get knowledge. Don't be ignorant of this law yep. or your obligations and um, because ignorance is not a defence, I imagine, in law. Nope. And just make sure you're aware of it. Um, so um, before we uh, finish up, Phil or Danielle, is there anything that you think that um, people should know that we have that Kelly and I haven't covered off today? Uh, there's, there's bound to be lots, David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've done a good right. job. Look, I think you All summed right. it up. It's just it's being aware, I think, yeah. you know, of your own farm and your own practices as well, and that's yeah. all you can do, I think. I've got one final question for both of you, and it's when you're not practising law, what do you love doing? You know, so I always love lawyers and accountants always have these great other things they do, so you, you can't <laughs> disappoint me, right? So what do you? I'll start with you, Phil. Uh, what do you do? What do you love doing when you're not when you're not practicing law? Um, I play golf with a group of mates every fortnight. I love it. Oh, there you go. Um, are, are you are you an amazing golfer? Uh, you, your mates might listen to this, so you got kind of like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll, we'll, you know, for for four guys that hit, you know, every second week. Where our handicaps are probably around the 15, 16 mark. Better than I can ever imagine. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty good, actually. Oh, oh that's um, good. The other thing that I really enjoy is our garden at home and um, I've got a shed full of tools. I like messing around with stuff. Oh, good. You, you can never get away with a shed full of tools. Always happy. <laughs> All right, Daniel, do you have a shed full of tools? Oh, I've got a house full of tools at the moment because my husband and I are renovating our 1970s house um, and we're up to the kitchen living dining. So it's we've sort of done it in stages. So when I'm not practising law at the moment, I'm painting, I'm smashing tiles, walls, you name it. Um, but when we're not doing that, I love exploring WA, camping. We've got a four-wheel drive. So We'll often spend our weekends either out on the boat fishing or, um, yeah, exploring the water or in the four-wheel drive, camping and exploring somewhere, some that. backyard somewhere. See, so if you're up to the kitchen now, are you actually cooking on a camp oven at the moment, <laughs> on a camp stove <laughs> at the moment? I, so we've actually set up like a little kitchen outside. Lucky we've got like a decent barbecue and we've got a bench. Huh? But it's pretty much like glamping really. <laughs> <laughs> and we had friends who did their kitchen and she goes, I got really sick of the barbecue really quickly. <laughs> I've run out of meals to cook. I'm just doing the same stuff. <laughs> oh, brilliant. All right, Danielle and Phil, thank you very much. And thanks again, Kelly, for being my co-host today. And I hope everybody learned a lot today. I certainly mm -hmm. like like you said, we could probably spend another hour talking about these subjects. Um, but I hope that gave everyone an insight today as to what they need to be aware of. And as our message from last week, you know, um, make sure you just get some basic knowledge about what your obligations are and, and be aware. And um, once again, Phil and Danielle, thank you very much. As always, if you'd like to know more about AgriMaster Farm Business Management Software and Services, you can find us at www.agrimaster.com.au or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. If you like this episode, please share it on social media or directly with a friend and let's make farm business great together.